Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your ways, and we pray that uh, as you promised that you fill us with all wisdom and understanding that we might have that tonight, particularly about what you've got to say. Uh, We pray that you might help us to understand um, what you've hidden from many other people, uh, and we pray that you might help us to live life in accord with what you reveal to us in your word this evening. Amen. Well, who likes secrets? Anyone love secrets? No? Well, I guess it depends if you know the secret or not, whether you love them. Who likes it when they know the secret and other people don't? All right. Okay. All right. Who likes it, who hates it, when people know secrets and you know that you don't know, they know, and you know they're holding out on you? That's kind of complicated. Uh, who, who, who hates that kind of situation? You think, ah, okay, it's almost the same people. The ones who love having the secret uh, hate being kept out of the secret. Well, uh, there's people who are in the know and people who are out of the know. And I don't know if you've been in a situation where you know something that's about to happen uh, and you're one of the very few people who does know that. Uh, and I guess how you feel in that position depends on what the secret is. If it's a plot twist coming up in a movie that you've seen already and you're like, <laughs> are you the kind of person that just can't help go, oh, what's this? Come on in. Um, or even give it away beforehand like someone this afternoon told me you know, what, what the internet buzz was about the new Star Wars movie and ended up telling me the whole plot, including the ending. And I said, that doesn't sound like speculation. Oh, no, it was someone who would seen the preview. And I'm like... Oh, you wrecked the whole movie for me. It hasn't even come out yet. Uh, yeah, I think he's he's Darth Sidious or something. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, if it's a surprise party that's coming up, maybe it's exciting when you're in the know and you're on the inside for someone special in your life, especially all the uh, having to feign ignorance about the party that's coming up. Uh, or it might be fear if you're in on a conspiracy to bring down the government. Or maybe if someone's tipped you off that there's a bomb that's been planted under this building right now. Uh, Yeah, that's right. And having that information means you're going to do something, right? You're going to get ready now for whatever it is. If it's a party coming up, well, you're going to spend your time organising and colluding with all the inside people and how to keep it from them. And then when they ask what's going on, you're like, oh, nothing, nothing, don't worry. Just uh, what are you doing Saturday night? Because we're not doing anything. Um, If it's a bomb under the building, maybe you just start running for the door like Mitch was about to. Uh, And if you're really kind, you you say, anyone want to come with me? All right, let's get out of here. Uh, Unless, of course, you're the one that planted the bomb, in which case you want to just slink out and not let anyone know. But on the other hand, when you're one of the ones who's left in the dark, how does that feel? Uh, Especially when you know something's up, well, you can feel stupid. Uh, Lots of people feel that way. You might feel left out. You might feel angry that there's this thing that everyone seems to know but you. Uh, Like when there's an inside joke or... Uh, everyone's laughing at you or you're about to be the victim of a prank because, well, you all are tonight because I put a bucket of water just above the door there. That's why I've half closed it. Okay, so just warning you ahead of time. First one through, boom, splash, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, you, you know, the group pulls off a prank like that and they're looking and they're watching you and you're like, why are they watching me and stuff? And then you, are you going to come out to the Maccas tonight? We're going out this door. I'll drive you. You go first. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, what's going on? Yeah, it's off-putting. But when it comes to what's on God's mind, would you rather be in the know or out of the loop? 
If God had a secret, would you want to know what it was? Or would you want to just kind of don't care? Uh, Well, in the passage tonight, God says there's something he's kept everyone in the dark about. It's not a prank. It's not an inside joke. Uh, but that now as his people, one of the incredible blessings that we have is that we get to know what no one else does. We get to know what's on God's mind. We get to know God's secret plan. And it might sound arrogant to say it, that out of all the world, we are the only ones who know God and his secrets. It sounds pretty arrogant, right? But it's actually not arrogant at all because it's not like we worked it out by the power of our brains or by our great intellects and our cunning and craftiness. Yeah, we know God and his secret will in much the same way that I can say, I know David Blouse. Ooh, oh, so arrogant, Joe. <laughs> you know, I know his name. I know he's married to Edwina. He's got two gorgeous daughters. I knew he grew up in Argentina, of all places. Uh, I know he's uh, highly overeducated. He's done two degrees uh, at uni, uh, at least. Uh, and he's so smart that he's now a convert to board gaming. Um, That's what he's done with his two degrees. Uh, He's got a pretty handy supply of Nerf guns. Uh, I know all kinds of things about it. How do I know those things? Because he told me, and I saw him, and I know him. He told me. The claim of Christians is that we know God, and we know God in much the same way that you can say, I know David Blouse. We know him because he's told us about himself. He's told us about his character. He's told us his will. He's told us what he's done. He's told us what he's going to do. He reveals to us his plans and his purposes. And so if it's not arrogant to say, I, you know, I know David Blouse, and it's no more arrogant to claim to know God. I can't take credit for it. It's not something I can pat myself on the back for or look forward to a Nobel Prize for because I've somehow done something to come into the seat of knowledge. I've come into the seat of knowledge because somebody has told me, and in the case of what we're looking at tonight, that person is God. It's all part and parcel of his generosity. We come today to verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 1, which you know we've been working through the last little while. And remember, it's part of one long sentence from verse 3 down to verse 14. And then there's a second sentence from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. And so it's a, it's a very convoluted sentence that, you know, us English readers can't cope with and so we whack it into about, you know, ten different ones when it's translated. Uh, it's convoluted. It's a profound statement in which Paul says basically, blessed be God, praise God. Praise God. Why? Praise God because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But then the sentence is really a long list a list of all those blessings, all these things that God has granted us and and generously given us. The blessing of of being chosen by God to be holy and blameless in his sight in verse 4. The blessing of being adopted as his sons or his daughters in verse 5. Verse 6, the blessing of being freed from slavery at a price. Redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And he says all these things, all these blessings have come to us from God in and through and only by Jesus. It's all in him, in Jesus Christ. But you get halfway through verse 7 and Paul says something very odd and very confusing, which if you're like me up until this week, you just kind of skip over because you're like, ah, I don't even know what that's about, so you just keep going. Uh, check it out. He says that all these blessings, 
the choosing, the adoption, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, have all been given us in accordance with God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What does it mean that God's grace comes by this, yeah, lavished on us with wisdom and understanding? The first bit's not that strange, but it's beautiful. You know, from all these things are the lavish grace of God. I don't know if you use that word lavish much. I love that word lavished. Uh, Alison made Sarah a two-year-old birthday cake during the week, chocolate cake, very rich chocolate cake, and then she she smothered it in chocolate icing, and so the whole thing was almost like a, just a pure chocolate bar with stuff on top, okay, but lavished on the icing, just thick and uh, delicious. And then then she got out the pink sprinkles, and she started pouring them on top, and then kept going and kept going, so it almost looked like uh, one of those you know, chocolate buttons with the hundreds and thousands on top. Uh, <laughs> That was lavish, lavish. And in giving us all these blessings, God has lavished on us his grace. It's grace because we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's undeserved kindness. It's love. It's generosity. God doesn't owe us anything. Being his son, being his daughter is not something we can demand of God. It's not something we should expect of God, nor do we earn that right. It's only out of his generosity that he's done it. And this grace has been lavished upon us, abundantly, profusely poured out all over us. But here's the odd bit, the strange bit, the surprising bit, that it's lavished on us with information. Yeah, that sounds a bit, well, boring really, isn't it? You know, God's lavish generous comes with, you know, some info. What does it mean his grace was poured out on us, lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding? Well, at the very least it means that all these things have not come by bypassing our brains. God has not just adopted us into his family without telling us that that's what he was doing or what it's all about. He's not just redeemed us without telling us how or why. Maybe he could have done all these things without any explanation, but that's not how he did do it. What he has done is tell us what he is doing and why he's doing it and how he's doing it that we might understand, that we might comprehend, that we might have wisdom. In fact, have all wisdom and all understanding. And the way that he has given us all wisdom and understanding is by giving us one vital piece of information, which was the thing he'd been holding back. Now you can see it a bit more clearly in some of the harder to read translations, which don't worry about whether you can read them or not. They just go for accuracy, but then you just can't read them. But, uh, but they don't break up this long sentence into lots of little sentences like ours does here. Our translators put a full stop right at the end of verse 8 and then they start verse 9 with a capital A for and, right? But it seems to make it into two completely separate ideas. But here's a more accurate translation. God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is the little sentence gets a little bit too long and hard to follow, but verse 9 is explaining how God has lavished his grace upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He has done it by making known to us the mystery of his will. That's the way into all wisdom and understanding. That is, we have become insiders. 
We are the ones who are in the know. We are the ones who have the missing piece of information, this mystery. We, we didn't work it out. He revealed it to us. But what is it? What, what's the mystery? And why is it a mystery? What does he mean by mystery? Because mystery can have all sorts of connotations, can't it? Uh, most people, when they hear the word mystery, they either think mysterious, ooh, spooky, uh, otherworldly, unfathomable, or sometimes we use the word mystery to, to mean a riddle, a puzzle, something that we've got to go through mental gymnastics to figure out, uh, like the Rubik's Cube. That, that's a mystery to most people. Anyone here able to solve the Rubik's Cube? Nerds. All right, okay. <laughs> I've never been able to do it. I've never really you know, tried that hard, but uh, it's, a, it's a mystery to most people and... I saw a 10-year-old solve it in 12 seconds last week. <laughs> McDonald's. Um, or like a murder mystery, a whodunit, or who stole the gems, who killed the victim. And by unravelling the mystery, you figure out that it was Professor Plum in the conservatory with the trampoline. Uh, can you kill someone with a trampoline? Anyway. <laughs> but unlike the game Cluedo where you can figure it out by a process of deduction, this mystery is much more like an Agatha Christie novel or an Agatha Christie story or Poirot on TV, which is Agatha Christie, or Miss Marple Mysteries. There you go. I, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those shows or read any of the books, but if you have, have you noticed that Agatha Christie always cheats? She always cheats. You cannot figure it out from the story. Because the revelation at the end by Poirot or Miss Marple, they will give a piece of information that has naturally not been written in the book, but they happen to notice in a room somewhere along the way that something was sticking out, but she didn't tell us. And so you, you weren't allowed to figure it out. And so the inspector, whichever one it happens to be, has to point it out as they're accusing the culprit in front of a whole group of people. They reveal this thing. It's a secret. And that's a much better translation of the word mysterion, which is translated mystery here. A mysterion, better translation, would be secret. It's hidden information that someone has, and if they have it, they can tell you. You can't find it out any other way. And if they do tell you, well then, you know the secret too. And it's a very important little word for Paul, and a very important word in the letter to the Ephesians. It's a key term, it's a, it's a technical term which refers to something very particular, a secret kept by God but now revealed to us. What is it? What is the mystery of God's will? Well, we're going to do a little bit of work. We're going to chase it through the letter because it's used six times in the letter of the Ephesians, just here and then five others. And as we read through and we start to understand what he means by this mystery. Chapter 3, verse 2. Have a look at that. Flip over. Chapter 3, verse 2. In my Bible, it's on the same page. It's pretty handy. <coughs> he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. 
and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, that's pretty key, right? Uh, we'll come back to that. But just pop down to verse 9 where he's still speaking of this mystery and of the task that he's been given. Uh, he says, I've been given this to make plain, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. See, it's a secret. God knew, but he kept it hidden. But now he's declared it. So it's an open secret. The word mystery is used again in chapter 5 and verse 32 to talk about marriage, which really is a mystery to most people. Uh, but the final time that the word's used is in chapter 6, verse 19, and it's used in much the same ways as it's being used in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 when he writes this, 6.19. He says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I'll fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now I reckon if you or I had been the Apostle Paul and we'd happen to write this letter and write chapter 6 verse 19, we wouldn't have used the word mystery there at all. We'd have just said, pray that I'll fearlessly make known the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. But not Paul. Paul's actually an ambassador of the mystery of the gospel. The strange part, the secret part. What is the mystery of the gospel of which he is an ambassador for which he's been appointed and now he's been locked up? We'll come back to chapter 3, verse 6. That was the key. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that is, the non-Israelites, the non-Jews, the pagans, they are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery is that the pagans, the non-Israelites, are to be included in the Messiah. That's God's secret. See, for centuries the Jews... You know, all from their creation with Father Abraham, or Abraham is in the, Abram is he's in the reading, uh, they had looked ahead for the Messiah, God's promised king, who would come. A thousand years they'd been looking for this Messiah who would rule the world on behalf of God's people. They thought that when he came, he would restore Israel's fortunes and he would smite all the nations around. The Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah to come and do the very same thing. Okay, and hence a lot of the hostility in the Middle East between Israel and everyone else. They can't give in and they won't because their Messiah will come and will smite the rest of the Middle East particularly. They thought it would be the end of foreign rule and a time of freedom and fortune for them. Yet when the Messiah comes, he turns out, yes, he is God's king who rules the world for God's people, but God's people turn out to be more than the Jews. They turn out to be Jews, yes, but Gentiles as well. That's the mystery. It's not mysterious, but it was God's secret plan. It was hidden, but now it's been shared. Uh, look back in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, In reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as has <coughs> now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostle and prophets. That is God's lavish generosity by which he has chosen people from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, by which he has adopted them to be his children, by which he has redeemed them at great cost from slavery in Jesus Christ and forgive their sins, 
was for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. God adopts people not only from Israel, but he adopts barbarians, pagans. He adopts the enemies of his people Israel, the people that hated them and that they hated. They too can be adopted into his family. And so as the gospel goes forward and out to the ends of the earth, God's generosity spreads throughout the world and and God's generosity is made known. It's not something we've discovered. It's not something we've worked out. It's something which he has made known to us. Now, I've got a secret. Oh, you'd love to know the secret. Uh, I've got thousands of secrets, in fact. But but let me just pick this one for a moment because it's a good one. Can anyone tell me what it is? Go. (laughs) Maybe uh, someone at 8 o'clock came up and whispered to me, I've been in the rectory and seen your wife. I know there's going to be more little feet. And I said, it's just gas. (laughs) She's not pregnant. I'm not pregnant. (laughs) Anyway, that's not my secret. Uh, Is there any way that you could discover my secret? Well, the more sadistic among you might think, well, I could think of several ways. We'll hang him upside down by his toes from the rafters and, and we could tickle it out of him. <laughs> you know? Or we could you know, poke him with burning hot sticks and things. All kinds of fun ways you could try and get the secret out. But are you going to discover this particular secret that way? No way. But I could tell you my secret and then you'll know it. And once you've discovered it, once I've told you, will you be arrogant and say, well, I'm so, I'm so great because I know Joe's secret. <laughs> well, hardly, especially if you knew the secret that I'm talking about. Well, I'll tell you then, right? You want to know? Yeah, you want to know? Huh? You want to know my secret? Anyone not want to know? All right, I won't tell you then. No, they don't want to know, so I'll just spoil it for them. And, and really, it's not really worth knowing any of my secrets. Oh, this one's pretty good. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I could give you a clue. If you look up, if you Google later after the sermon, Miss Italy 2007. All right? Miss Italy 2007. She's my secret, all right? But anyway, you can do that later, all right? Come talk to me about it. Miss Italy, 2007. Write it down now. Don't Google it now. All right? (laughs) Hey? It sounds dodgy. I assure you it's not dodgy, although if you look at the images it might be dodgy, but don't do that kind of thing. But anyway, but she is my secret. But anyway... My secrets really aren't that worth knowing. They might be interesting to some people, but, but God had a secret for centuries. For a thousand years, he didn't let it out. Although once it became known, you can see it was always there in the Old Testament if you go back and read it carefully. You, you see it in the promise that God made to Abraham right at the start in Genesis 12 when he formed the nation of Israel. You know, All the nations will be blessed through you. I mean, they heard the rest of the promises and, you know, you're going to have land and family and we're going to be awesome, we're going to be blessed and anyone we can curse, hey, let's just curse the world, they'll be cursed by God. Um, You can see it in the prophets like Isaiah 52 where the coming one will be a light to the nations. 
But God's secret was kept hidden for centuries that when he sent forth his son as Messiah, he was not just sending him for Israel alone, but he was sending him for the Gentiles as well to make people his children who were the enemies of Israel, pagans and barbarians, people that God himself couldn't stand, people who were the very enemies of God, people who worshipped lies. And the way that he was going to make them his children was by paying for their sinfulness. And now the Messiah has come and he's paid the redemption price uh, and now he's calling through his messengers like Paul and many others since to come and receive God's grace, no matter from what culture or background or nation or language group. No, all are welcome in God's family. And so even the people who would seem the unlikeliest of people to ever become Christians are being saved around the world this very day. Did you know the imams in the Middle East, one of the things that's in the background has led up to this whole ISIS thing, the imams in the Middle East are really worried because they've calculated that 750 Muslims every hour become Christians. And they're scared they're going to lose it all around the world and that's just the ones they know. There are now three Sydney Anglican churches who are running services just for Arabic-speaking Muslim converts to Christianity, right, in, in Arabic. Today people might be tempted to think that Christianity is just a white religion, but that's only because of the movement of the gospel through Europe in centuries gone by. But God has been calling people out of every land to himself through the preaching of the gospel down through the centuries. The gospel came to India way before it came to England. The gospel even got to Japan. People were becoming Christians in Japan before they were becoming Christians in Britain. Christianity is no more a white religion than it was ever a Jewish one. And Paul will be at pains to say that this all should create a profound unity within the church, a unity between Jew and Gentile. Now the two have become one, and the second half of chapter 2 is all about that, how the dividing wall of hostility, which once kept us Gentiles separate, shut out from the promises of God, that wall has now come down in Jesus Christ, like the Berlin Wall, if you saw that back in the 80s, just destroyed and so people who, who could never relate could now just freely walk across and be in each other's arms again, families that were broken. And, and it should bring a unity in, in individual congregations and, and even between churches, a, a unity of spirit and of love and of peace, a, a unity of purpose particularly, how as we seek to know Jesus and serve Jesus, we do it together by each playing our part, using the gifts that we've been given to serve him. It's all a result of this great mystery which has now been revealed. And what's more, having made known to us the mystery of his will, having revealed his big secret to us, we now have all riches of wisdom and understanding because that's the secret to everything that God's been doing. For we know now the plan of God. We, we, we're no longer in a secret. We know God. We know what he's like. We know the secret's out. It's been spilled. We know what God has been doing from before the beginning of the foundation of the world and we know what he, he plans to do at the end of all time. And so we have the basis now of how to think and how to live and we can live life now with a new outlook. We can look at life in our own lives from God's perspective. Now we don't know everything. We don't know all the details of God's plan but we do know several things 
We know who's in control. We know what his goals are. We know how he's going to achieve that goal. And we know where we'll fit into that plan. Now, none of those things we know by discovery, none of those we've devised by our cleverness, all of them have been told to us. But having been told them, that we now have sufficient information upon which to think about life, upon which to think about the meaning of life and its purpose and value, upon which to think about the values of what's right and wrong and, and the value of things that are worthwhile and the things that are useful and are a waste of time, upon which to think about what God wants of me and the value of which he places on me and upon you. I can now think about life from a completely new and different and true perspective, God's perspective. And this information, this wisdom and understanding that God has given me affects everything. It affects my decision-making, it affects my values, it affects my goals and my plans, my short-term, medium-term, long-term planning. Uh, let me give you one concrete example that's very closely tied into this mystery. See, I believe in people leaving our comfort and security and situation in life in order to go to the ends of the earth, to go and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe in the missionary cause. I believe in the evangelisation of the world. I believe that that is a highly valuable and desirable activity for people to commit their lives to. And it should be something that we would even encourage our children and grandchildren into it. Where it's weird because most Christian parents, you ask them you know, if they believe in missionaries and do they want missionaries to go, do they pray for them? Yeah. Do you want your kids to go? No way. I, you know, I've, I've spent thousands of dollars on their education. I want them to be a doctor or an engineer or whatever it is. But actually, if you, if you really want to evangelise the world, you've got to be encouraging those you know to go, right? It's a good thing to do. It's a right thing to do. It's a proper thing to do. And, and that we should want many people to be engaged in it, not just the odd one. No one but a Christian would ever agree with me. Anyone else would say, you're mad. See, that's, that's terrible. You're trying to impose our you know, values on other people. You know the people out there in Pango Pango land, they're, they're really happy right now. They go mucking up their lives with this Christianity stuff. And what a terrible waste of your own life, your own career. What a terrible waste of the education, the investment that our community has made in you through public education and that your family has made through you for buying all those textbooks and housing you all those years to go and just waste it all on people who don't even really want to know you, don't care what you've got to say and may even hate you and kill you. Non-Christians will never agree that going as a missionary to the ends of the world is ever worthwhile. But as Christians, we're committed to the value of people going to the ends of the earth to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. We must be committed to it because that's God's plan. God's plan is to make children out of people from the ends of the earth. He's not the God of Australia. He's not the God of the Jews. He's not the God of any particular. He's the God of all the world and he wants children from all over the world to worship him and know him and to be adopted as his children. And what's amazing and magnificent is that the ends of the world are coming to Sydney and even in church this very day we've had someone from Russia, we've had someone from Argentina, someone from Indonesia, someone from Vietnam. I don't know sure the, the Asian couple, I think maybe Hong Kong. Hey? Um, we've had someone from Denmark. We've had someone from Uruguay. 
We've had someone from Wales, even there. Not New South Wales, the real Wales. Uh, And you can see that it's all coming about. God is doing his work. He's calling people from all the nations to come to him and making children of them. But they, they can only do that through knowing his great son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice, sacrificed on the cross for the sake of people in deepest, darkest Africa, for the sake of people in deepest, darkest South America, for the sake of people in deepest, darkest Europe, and that's very black right now, and deepest, darkest America, and deepest, darkest Australia, or wherever you care to mention. You cannot be a Christian and be uncommitted to the evangelisation of the world. For if you're uncommitted, then you haven't understood what God's thinking You haven't understood God's plan, which lies at the very basis of you being a Christian. But if you are committed, then it's going to be reflected in in your prayers, in your giving. It will be reflected in your going or in who you encourage to go, who you send. Our understanding of the plan of God gives us a whole different value system, which if God is God, and he is, is the right value system. And so praise God that he has not left us in the dark. Part and parcel of the blessings of God is the blessing of illumination. Praise God that he is so generous to us as to tell us his plan that we may know how to live. Father, we thank you that you have lavished on us your grace and given us all wisdom and understanding through the knowledge of this secret that you kept hidden that you want people from all over the world to be yours. Father, we thank you for that mercy, for we are from the ends of the earth and you have granted us a home with you in your family and we pray that you will transform us, that we might be excited about your mission, that we might know what you're on about, that we might see how that transforms into what we value and what we do and our morality and our service and and how we speak to people about Jesus and whether we even bother. Father, we do pray that you would win the world to you. Particularly, you pray that you help us to reach out to all the different cultures and nationalities to not be racist uh, and to care for those who are on our doorstep, but help some of us to take up the missionary call as well and to go to the ends of the earth to preach your glorious name that you might bring your salvation to those you have chosen. Father, we pray that we would praise you always for these great mercies. Amen.